0: Hello, and welcome to the Journal of Women's History podcast. We are collaborating with the New Books Network to bring you some of the most recent, exciting books published in women's history. My name is Jennifer Davis. I'm Associate Professor of History at the University of Oklahoma and co-editor of the Journal of Women's History. And today I will be speaking with Professor Julie Hardwick. Professor Hardwork is the John E. Green Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. And she's joining us today to talk about her new book, Sex in an Old Regime City, Young Workers and Intimacy in France, 1660 to 1789, published this year, really this month, we're recording in September of 2020, Um, published by Oxford in September 2020. So it's hot off the presses. Just a very brief introduction. Professor Hardwick's previous books included Family Business, Litigation and Political Economy of Everyday Life in Early Modern France, and The Practice of Patriarchy, Gender and the Politics of Household Authority in Early Modern France. Professor Hardwick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you.
0: We're so happy to have you join us. So um, I wanted to ask you, first off, how are you and your family during coronavirus we're recording this of course in September 2020 it's um we've been dealing with coronavirus for the past six months at least how are you all how are you all doing
1: well our experience of um of, of COVID has been like a lot of other families I think in the sense of absolutely unpredictable disruptions <laughs> So um, we have two young adult daughters, and in March, very quickly out of the blue, they were both suddenly back home with us, one home from college, and the other evacuated from her job in West Africa. So um, we had them uh, home with us for five months. Uh, It was honestly, for us, a little silver lining in the COVID cloud, because it's so unexpected to have your gone away to have their lives children back home with you. Right, enjoyed it very much. I think they managed it very stoically and cheerfully. (laughs) Um, But they're both gone now. One has gone back to college, in fact. So I'm very closely engaged, both as a faculty member and a parent, um, with what's going on in colleges um, at this time. And our uh, older daughter's just started graduate school in England this week, (laughs) so she also is moving on. So, you know, in terms of um, life online, living online, teaching online, um, young people having their lives um, disrupted in all these ways, you know, we've been seeing it from many different sides.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think, you know, from my experience, really, um, just my contact with students is there's this tremendous frustration with not being able to just Get started on on my life,
1: right? Yes, um, that sort of and, uncertainty. The metaphor I started using with them is that COVID's like a bucking bronco. Huh? You never know when the next disruption is going to pop up out of the blue, and you know, as we all know, flexibility—we're trying to be very flexible, but it's it's very trying. Um,
0: it's it's taking all of my mental energy to be
1: yes, yes to be
0: ready for the next buck, definitely. <sighs> Well, um, I'm so glad to hear that you all are safe, though, and, um, and that your daughters uh, were able to enjoy a little time at home with you and, and your husband. That sounds sounds really, actually, really lovely. Um, so I want to get us, get us into the book. Um, so this is a book about sex and sexuality among workers in old regime France. Um, And specifically, you focus on the city of Lyon. So I wanted to um, just ask you if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to this project and what what inspired you to research this this topic.
1: Um, I came to this project actually because of my undergraduates. I was already working in Lyon. I had written a previous book that's based primarily in the archives in Lyon, and I was working on another book um, that is still in progress, um, based mainly in Lyon. And I teach uh, uh, every year here at UT a big undergraduate course called Witches, Workers, and Wives, Gender and Family in Early Modern Europe. And I love that course. The students love it. It's lots of fun. But I noticed... Um, repeatedly year after year I'd get the same set of questions early in the course that is I would start out with describing some basic demographic patterns in early modern Europe that is young people married worked started work early but they married late um, the rates of illegitimacy were very low but the rate of premarital pregnancy was very high and so there was this decade, let's say, where they were young, single working adults before they got married. And then I'd be ready to move on. And the students were always asking me, so what was going on then? Were they dating? Were they, you know, what was courting like then? Did they hook up? All these kinds of questions. And I would say, I don't know. Let's talk some more about how they worked as servants and apprentices, because we have lots of material about that. And then one day in the archives, I actually was frustrated with my other book project, which is very challenging. And I saw these records, these um, paternity suits essentially. And I decided to look in the archive, look, to call them up. It was a sort of legitimate procrastination um, to see what was in there. And as soon as I started reading them, I was absolutely amazed by the richness of um, these accounts, both by young women and by their neighbors and family and friends who um, address the court as witnesses, about young people's social lives, the sort of everyday, very ordinary Um, practices of heterosexuality if you like Um, exactly the kinds of questions my students are asking me and you know I was I mean I was amazed at the richness of the detail I was also amazed at just what they were taking for granted that this was totally okay what we would think of as very expansive levels of intimacy let's say for young people um, they thought would absolutely okay. So I remember one of the earliest cases I read, a neighbor said, you know, so he saw them walking out together every evening. He watched them kissing. He watched the, um, uh, the young man put his hand on her breast or under her skirt. And then he ended, so you see, I didn't see anything inappropriate. <laughs> and, oh, that's so great. <laughs> and I thought, really? <laughs> um, having young daughters at home, you know, teenage daughters at home with, you know, boyfriends and everything myself, I was really struck by that. So then I started um, thinking, no, I can make a book out of this. You know, these are really good questions that my students are asking that we found very difficult to find answers to in the archives. And um, and that's how it started.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. I just had that conversation last week with my students talking about this delayed marriage pattern in Northwestern Europe, right? That kind of that yes. um, story that we receive as a package in graduate school. And then we um, kind of spend our lives rearticulating it or taking that for granted that, of course, there's this 10 years or so that working people are um, delaying marriage and earning enough money to be able to maybe start their own family. Um, and your book really shows us what they do and how they manage their relationships in that decade. Um, and maybe I'll ask you to, to uh, reflect more on this, but maybe challenges some aspects of that package yes, of, yes. of the family model, right, that we yes. might have received. All right. Um, do you want to tackle that
1: for right. us? Right. You know, I think one of the things, well, there's, there were several things that were very surprising um, to me right away in in contrast to that package, which I, as like you, just delivered every autumn. I didn't ask any questions about it. I just accepted it. I suppose I was a bit jaded about it, actually. You know, of course, this is how it goes. And um, you know, one is this, these expansive, as I said, practices of intimacy, that is young couples, um, it was totally acceptable, I suppose, regarded, as we would say, in, as developmentally appropriate huh, for them right. to experiment with potential partners. Um, in terms of compatibility, um, not, you know, a model of early modern marriage that there was a lot of pragmatism about dowry, property, um, you know, very pragmatic issues about can you make a living together. That those are definitely present. These are um, young workers and their families, um, you know, really scrabbling by month to month, like most working people were in early modern Europe. That is living check to check, as we would say today. Um, but so they they did have to have a dowry or she had to earn a dowry to get married. There were those pragmatic considerations, but this sense of looking for a companion, if you like, compatibility as a part of that and exploring that through um, a whole set of practices, a whole set of habits that the community regarded as totally acceptable, so that they went out together every evening. They spent all the time walking around in the city in the evenings. Um, They were... um, as long as they were, let's say, in a steady couple, monogamous, huh? um, they were allowed to uh, make out, you know, as I said, if, if it was my daughter and her boyfriend on the couch, I would be uh, outside you two. Huh? Um, <laughs> but, you know, people saw them. And in, really, in fact, the watching, the fact that the community was watching that was regarded as a kind of safeguard, that it didn't go too far. Huh? Uh, so there was, and for me, one of the right. very interesting parts of that was... Um, was also what did illicit desire look like for a young woman? That is so much of what we know about um, women's sexuality in the early modern period is through criminal records. When we see a lot of what was problematized or stigmatized in terms of women's sexuality, whereas these young women um, and their communities, you know, regarded some. Desire for intimacy, you know, as being a normal part of young of young women's growing up and actually experimenting um, with that kind of um, intimacy, and so I was really surprised um, and interested to see that too. Hmm? Yes,
0: yes, I found that to be such a compelling um, archive documenting women's desire and initiative in in forming relationships um and the testimonies that you have from women really help us i think better understand um what motivated a woman to seek out a particular man right um what she asserted was normal behavior right people are very intent to say um this followed all the patterns right Yes. Um, yes. of um, uh-huh. uh, of a relationship headed toward marriage, they had a sense that that was kind of the end goal. It seems to me. Um, yes, but- and
1: um, you know, so um, so what's very visible in my book are those normative patterns. This was how young women could behave, and it gave them a lot of room, as you said, you know, to make some choices, to um, to experiment with companionship, compatibility, physical intimacy. What wasn't okay for young women? We can deduce from this was kissing a different boy every weekend. <laughs> um, right. So we can see them drawing lines like that and emphasizing stable relationships um, that seem like they were they could be headed to matrimony. And so I think in in that sense we we do see um, marriage as being a very desirable goal for young women. (laughs) And, um, you know, some people, um, when I've been giving talks about this, have said, well, you know, why do we assume marriage is what they wanted? And I do think, um, obviously, we're starting to see um, some better evidence about same-sex desire and so on. And in some... work, for instance, by Claire Croston on women seamstresses, she's shown a very high percentage of all female households among never married women. And it's hard to know whether that's an economic choice to make a household together. In Alwyn Hufton's old phrase, spinster clustering, still one of my favorite, that women live together so they could afford to, or whether there was some um, actual desire as part of that. And I think... I certainly want to acknowledge that. But in the majority of cases, huh, the vast majority of cases, I think young women did want to be married because marriage offered them um, some disadvantages for sure, some risk for sure, but also a lot of other kinds of advantages. So and certainly I think the communities wanted to emphasize that track, that what communities wanted to see was marriage, too. So um in this what I would say expansive intimacy, there's also a lot of tracking them huh, to what was what was regarded as desirable outcomes.
0: Right. Right. Who do you see is most important in providing that kind of community safeguard, as you call it?
1: I think one of the interesting things for me here is how many people were involved in that project who were differently positioned. Uh, That is, it seems to me that in working communities, there was a broad consensus about um, wanting young women to go forward with their lives, to experiment, to find a partner, and young men too. Um, But a real sense of the risks for both young men and young women if it went off the rails. And the way that it went off the rails primarily in terms of being a community matter was if she got pregnant and they didn't get married. So in terms of, um, you know, the number of people who were watching them, uh, commenting on them, um, sometimes reprimanding them or just saying, watch out, um, with what you're doing, you know, it's friends, neighbors, coworkers, um, employers, um, you know, sometimes much more casual acquaintances, you know, and in that sense, young people's lives, young people's relationships, young people's intimacy was really a community project uh, um, in this so period. And I think that's, you know, they, they had no sense of it's a private matter between them or any of those kinds of um, modern, I guess, notions about um, young couples relationships forming.
0: Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Um... I wonder if we should, let's talk just a little bit about how um, how maybe expectations for men and young men um, seem to factor into the story that you're telling here.
1: Yes. And I think for me that this was one of the fascinating parts um, of the archive, of the documents I was reading right away, um, that that wasn't any kind of fixation just on managing young women or expecting them to be celibate or chaste. I mean, I think one of the most um, interesting aspects is that young women could be making out with these guys and everyone knew and their honor and chastity was perfectly intact <laughs> um, because, right. you know, they it was all respectable. What they were doing was respectable. Um, young men. It one, was you know, really they, they seen were,
0: within that relationship, right? Yes.
1: yes. Yeah. And so, But the attention that communities were paying to young men as well was very striking to me. And again, um, as you started by saying, this sort of conventional package we've come to expect about young people's relationships on the way to matrimony. I think this is a very striking difference from that conventional package, too, in the sense that... um, the almost varied members of the communities were also watching young men very closely yeah, and mm-hmm. expecting young men to recognize uh, that their behavior was going to have consequences and that their communities cared about how young men manage those consequences. And I think the sort of link um, between young men and the eventual responsibility huh? Yeah, for the consequences of their sexual activity was very, very clear um, for the community, and they tried to make it very, very clear um, to young men. So, all you know, these patterns that come out in the um, in the material, and especially in the witnesses, um, as witnesses recalling how they talked to young men, said, What are you doing here? Are you going to marry her? You're seeing her too much. Um, that sort of constant conversation about their intimacy and um, safeguarding it, as you said, in my phrase about that. But also when something happened, that is when she became pregnant and he didn't marry her, um, you know, the, the the communities weren't enforcing marriage in the way that we might say today, shotgun marriage, Um, you know, about a couple who get married when she's already pregnant and, Um, But they were looking for him to take responsibility. And for them, that responsibility, if it didn't include marrying her, did include taking the baby so that she was free to reboot her life, if you like. And that sense in which young men were routinely charged with the custody of the baby as well as with um, reimbursing her you know, for the costs of, um, of delivery um, and and so on. And, um, you know, that's really amazing. And, you know, the high point of that pressure is young men was young men being held in prison while paternity suits were going on huh? so that they could definitely be made responsible. And I think that's very striking for us, um, for us as early modernists and for us in terms of thinking about the long history of communities and young people's relationships and the shifting focus between, um, between young men and young women.
0: Right, right. It really informs us. And you put this so well in the book that that expectation that we as 21st century historians might have, that expectation for the sexual double standard does not exist. It does not operate in the ways that we are, might be expecting it to operate,
1: no, and um, I think that I think that's right. And um, there is a double standard, as I say, in, in various ways. We can see that the costs were for higher for women, the risks were higher for women. Um, you know, all of a wide variety of men's sexual misdoings was reduced to a simple paternity charge. You know, in right. some cases. Um, so I think that's exactly right to say the. There was a sexual double standard, but not operating at all in the way that we might think, or in fact that operated at all in the w- in the way um, that it came to operate. I think in the nineteenth and twentieth century, yeah. um, for sure. So, uh, so that's really important, I think, to realize that. I will say when I gave this, um, I talk about this once, and Judith Bennett was in the audience. Huh? Um, she told me afterwards that she wanted to hear more about patriarchy, um, because her argument, of course, is all about a long-term persistence in these gender inequalities, that patriarchal equilibrium. And she did make me think much more carefully about trying to be precise about that. You know, not that oh, young women have all this liberty, but you know, there were, um, but that it was nevertheless a much different situation than we assumed then or then became common later.
0: Right. I think that's a, that's a tough needle to thread. Um, and when you're looking for continuity versus dramatic change, right, this is a book that definitely stresses continuities, um, and I'm going to use your phrase here, the continuities that shape experiences of sexuality and reproduction, end right. quote, right? And within the old regime era, kind of 1660 to 1789. But then I love the way that you kind of reach into 21st century Texas mm-hmm. and say, there, there are some continuities in terms of how young people, unmarried um, people navigate uh, pregnancy outside of marriage. And we have to emphasize the historical circumstances, as well as identifying those elements of continuity.
1: Yes, and I I think it is really important for us to see how challenging it has been for young people over centuries to manage these situations. And we can see, of course, that women always wanted to control reproduction huh? and always um, tried to, even if they were not very successful, they were trying. And that remains a potent, um, a potent challenge. You know, this sort of patterns between young men and young women, um, you know, even today, you know, if they do these surveys of college students, um, a survey about, you know, what do you expect when you've um, paid for a, uh, Uh, date, you know, for a movie ticket or dinner for your female um, companion, young men will say, well, actually, they do expect something in response, you know, know? and so that sort of constant um, navigating, negotiating the terms of um, what remains um, an unequal relationship in some ways, you know, this is a really... um, Difficult to thread the needle of, as you said, but important long-term project, I think, you know, not only for the, um, the history of family life or young people, but in the other ways in which the historical circumstances around them, as you said, have changed over time and have, have inflected, uh, let's say, the way that they process and experience and manage these kinds of situations.
0: Absolutely. 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 I think your book also made me realize how much of the story of history of sexuality and gender relations is really told from an elite perspective. And that by getting the granular details of working women's and working men's relationships, um, we saw different forces at work.
1: Yes. I'm- I think that's. I think that's. That's always important for me. I'm always interested in ordin, ordinary people, as they say here, in the you know um, ordinary lives of everyday working people, and right. I think obviously in the history of sexuality, what's been available to us, huh? um, that's that's such a difficult challenge in any writing any history of sexuality, the source material, and so definitely um, the. the the material that's been available to us is material created mostly by elite men actually um but uh, but not only but uh, some elite women um or has been printed or saved in an archive as part of you know family papers for elite family and so so that's sort of shaded i would say our whole history of sexuality you know that what was in fact Um, A specific set of practices and the meanings attached to those practices and resources tied to an elite group has become a kind of stand-in for sexuality of the whole period. And I think we need a much more nuanced view of that. Um, Nina Kushner, one of our colleagues in French history, has a wonderful phrase that I use in the book um, about multiple sexual cultures existing. And um, I think that's exactly right. And same-sex desire, of course, as we mentioned, is one of those. They were coexisting. Sexual cultures Absolutely. coexisting, sometimes overlapping. But um, as I would say, working people, they're actually the largest number. <laughs> so um, in that sense, their sexual culture it was hugely important when we try to understand what was going on at the time, I think. And um, that's a great part of this material. I mean, right from the start, I thought... Um, you know, these young women and witnesses talking um, about such intimate matters in such detail. Um, it's, 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 a, it's an astonishing set of material.
0: It really is. It really is. And the, the direct access that we have mediated, of course, through clerks and um, the different institutions that are producing these documents, but the voices of the very different women Um, and their different expectations and experiences comes through loud and clear, um, throughout this volume. That's really, I think one of the greatest achievements is to be able to, um, read your book and, and hear those voices.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I really wanted to, um, to have them at the center, you know, to have their experiences and their takes on what was happening, um, at, at, at the center, um, while trying to be as, as aware as I can um, of these complicated um, ways in which the documents we have today are produced. Right. But um, we do get a sense, I think, I hope, and I'm glad that you had you that sense of um, really being able to uh, glimpse and enter into a bit young women's um, lived experiences of these kinds of relationships and these kinds of situations
0: right let's talk just a little bit about the sources right so um you do say that the heart of the book is built around these paternity suits right where a young woman goes in and she says "Um, this young man is the father let me explain to you the whole relationship Um, it's tremendous archive how would those be put together Um, and what kinds of materials appeared in in these
1: dossiers in these files So the first part of the legal case would be when a young woman went to court to to tell her story to the judge, to see if the judge would allow her case to proceed or not. Uh So um, in a dossier for a paternity suit, that's the first item that would appear, the first record that, that would be of, so the young woman appeared before us and she told us this story. Um, And then at the end of that, the judge would say, um, you know, the case can proceed or that the case cannot proceed. Uh That is, Mm -hmm. she seems to have the right kind of story. Uh That is, she was in a stable relationship um, that seemed to be headed towards marriage. Um, And we we can go ahead with it further. The second stage of the process would be that a surgeon or midwife visited her at home uh, to Um, confirm her allegation of pregnancy. And there's often, not always, but often the little record of that still included too. And so I think, you know, that was a very um, tense situation for a young woman. (laughs) She's decided to go to court um, and make this matter much more public by going to court. Um, And then she has this um, surgeon or midwife, was supposed to be a surgeon, but in fact, it was often only a midwife, um, come and... um, examine her to see if, if she did indeed seem to be pregnant and the the, the reports make clear that the examination was both um, on appearance what size was she what was her hair like what you know uh, did she look a healthy color or did she look a pallid color um, but also a physical examination where they would touch her breasts and her stomach to assess um, the pregnancy on that basis so um, that's a very inv- that was a very invasive confirmation actually, for young women. Um, And when we think about them deciding to take this path, um, they knew that all these things were going to happen, of course. right. And then um, they interviewed the witnesses. And the young woman and her lawyer um, gave the names of witnesses and suggested some questions. And so um, they were able to call on people she thought would be reliable, that is, people who knew or had seen what was going on. And, um, you know, one of the most fascinating things for me um, was when these um, witnesses, you could tell the questions that they were being asked, but would sort of get off the script and say, moreover, know, and add, you know, some other elaboration of their own that they wanted um, to say, that's ver- that's very telling.
0: That's really, those are the best always. Yes,
1: yes, always the best. And then very, uh, very interestingly, the, the young woman would also have a QA and a with the judges. Um, we call that an interrogatory in the, um, in the French legal system. And what was very interesting for me about that is that young women would often Give much more elaborate versions of their stories than in the first come to court and you know and make the initial petition to be able to file a suit, and especially right. in those accounts, um, the judges ask the same questions: How old are you? How long have you known him? Have you had a baby with anybody else? Mm-hmm. Huh? How did this happen that you came to be pregnant? Um, and so in that part, they would often um, add. Details that they hadn't initially, um, and especially these details about how they had sought to control um, interruption, um, reproduction, or interrupt reproduction. That is, that's when they talk about the remedies that they had used to try to end their pregnancies and restore their menstrual cycle. Right. Or or about the violence that had been involved in their first experience of. uh, of intercourse with him. And so those um, interrogatories are really valuable um, for me in that sense, in this much more specific texture about particular moments in their um, in their relationships. Sometimes they there's a, a, an interrogatory that is a question answer with a young man, too. And then it, eventually the judges um, would conclude and pass sentence very conventional, um, predictable um sentencing in this case that is awarding her a financial support and awarding custody or requiring him to take custody of the baby. One thing that happens is um, that not all of these parts, not all parts of every case survive, either because of archival misfiling or they were never filed together or because um, the case didn't continue and that might be either as we would say that she dropped charges huh? or right. it might be because they settled out of court huh? and probably um i think a lot of the times when it doesn't they it doesn't go as far as the judges um giving a sentence they and their families co-workers neighbors had all <clears throat> sorry excuse me managed to get them to make an out-of-court settlement huh?
0: So they arrive at an agreement.
1: Yes. But
0: we don't have access to whatever that that agreement was. No.
1: And, you know, that's one of the, you know, and so I think um, what's two things that are important about these paternity suits are one that that was very unusual. Most young women and young men who didn't get married did not go to court. They made an informal agreement, Um, sometimes with a notary who would make a record of it. Uh, probably more often, just with their um, uh, priests, employers, neighbors, landlord or landlady, you know, managing um, an agreement that we would say shake hand, you know, they shook hands on it.
0: Huh? Right, agree um, to pay this amount of whatever yes, expenses yes, are, are Exactly, upcoming.
1: exactly. Yeah. And um, so, I think going to court was unusual in terms of numbers for sure. But I think what's very usual is the backstories they told about the co- the course of their relationships, because the only thing that had been unusual or troubling about their relationship was that he didn't marry her. <laughs> you know, before okay. that, as far as neighbors, uh, all community members, um, thought everything had been proceeding as they would expect. So, um, so it's very valuable um, to me in terms of the normal course of events in young people's relationships, even though. The outcomes were exceptional.
0: It kind of shows where the. I mean, these cases that end up in the archives maybe are, are outliers, but in the tale that they're relating, they're emphasizing how how similar they are. Yes, to exactly. their friends who have not shown up in front yes, of the court.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. um, yes, and for, you know that's what the judges needed to hear. Um, that the, you know this was um, a totally appropriate relationship running smoothly on the tracks, you know, until um, until she got pregnant, and that's what witnesses had to confirm, huh? right? Um, that, that 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 was in fact the sense. And so, you know, one barrier um, to young women going to court. Well, one was I think everybody probably preferred to settle out of court. So let's just agree among ourselves that you know, this is what's going to happen. And sure. those agreements um, seem to have been very close um, to what the court would decide. That is, the courts and communities were closely aligned. That is, in those agreements, um, it also seems like young men were given custody of the babies and that young men paid some um, financial compensation to her so that um, she wouldn't be out of pocket for the uh, costs of having a midwife for delivery and for some having some po- postnatal care there. I see. Um, but you know, one one interesting thing about these cases too is that um, sometimes young women deposited evidence um, that is still there attached to the cases, and some of this evidence is really interesting because it, they sometimes had tried an out of court settlement, and they had a copy of it that they let that they gave as evidence, and it hadn't worked in that case because the young man hadn't respected the out-of-court settlement, but we can see um, some of the evidence they provided, uh, young women provided to the court is so interesting for us because it didn't survive in any other way. That is, we can't find records like those in the archives, except if they were um, preserved by being offered as evidence.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness! So you would have actually the statement saying "I agree to yes. this amount of money" or to take responsibility for the exactly. this child. Exactly. That's phenomenal. Yes. What yes. are there any other kinds of um, accidents, accidental uh, objects filed in these archives?
1: Um- Accidental to a evidence in these cases. You mean? Yes, yeah, some yeah. of my favorites were those were letters. Um, we only have the letters that she received because. Um, th- so sometimes they deposited letters, and those are very interesting, and um, they show um, both intense. Um, Intense feelings, uh, passion, affection, but also um, by the nature of the relationships, I suppose, in letters that ended up deposited, being deposited in court, um, you know, fighting, disputing, um, angry with each other, disappointed with each other. So they they show a wide range of emotions, too. Some of my favorites um, were little scraps of paper, actually, for instance, um, little scraps of cards that young men had written, like um, – uh, little um, love notes, as I suppose we would say in English today, like a little note you might put in a child's lunch, you know, that kind oh, of thing, wow. a sort of casual, intimate note. I love those. Um, and also one of the things young women were interested in is um, getting confirmation of promises to marry. So they didn't mm-hmm. have any kind of culture or practice of engagement rings huh, that provide for us today, this very concrete evidence of um intent to marry and commitments um and you know today young women are like busy showing their engagement rings posting them on instagram you know everyone wants to see the ring so there was there's nothing like that um in the early modern period but young men young women um were often able to, or often said they had been able to get him to write a promise to marry. So they had a piece of paper, informal, again, totally informal, usually, where he promised to marry them. And, you know, sometimes young women would say they had showed these, they've showed these pieces of paper to their friends or their neighbors, and witnesses would would say, oh, yes, I saw that, you know, written promise to marry that he gave her. And, um, I think they're just great too, <laughs> um, and they're not as exciting as engagement rings in any way, but they're so interesting for me in terms of young women's perspectives. That um, I know we're going out every evening, and I know we're talking about getting married, and I know he said that he'll never have another woman but me, and that we will be married, and we should we can go ahead and have sex, but she still wanted a more concrete commitment. So let me right. have, let me have him write this down huh? write and then down. that'll be a yeah. kind of uh, more concrete huh? um, commitment than him just telling me, oh yes, yes, of course we're going to get married. And so I was very interested in those. I love those. Uh-huh. That's
0: incredible. That's incredible. So um, I, I want to give just a real brief kind of survey of the chapters, right? I, um. I want to signal that you have this marvelous opening um, chapter on the sources and, and the context of Lyon. We then move to a chapter on courtship, right? And really practices of courtship, um, outlining the norms. Um, you have enough material for a whole chapter on holding men responsible, right? And, and I think that does such service in our our expanding our information and our knowledge about um, expectations for men's sexuality outside of marriage, as well as, um, as well as young women. You have enough material for a whole chapter on remedies, (laughs) which I just found incredible, right? So um, if you wouldn't mind, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the specific remedies for, um, for, Pregnancy outside of marriage. Then the fifth chapter is on intimate labor, really looking at the people they had to be in financial relationships with, right? As a result of an unexpected pregnancy, um, landladies, but also midwives and surgeons, and um, and then the final chapter deals with foundlings, children left with the Hotel Dieu, um, as the kind of makeshift orphanage, and then um, children who die either in childbirth or um, from infanticide. So this is, it's just an astounding survey of the consequences of sex outside of marriage. Um, and I think you really, you run the gamut of um, the the really the happiest endings to the very most tragic and grief-stricken endings and attend to the emotions that that accompany all of those experiences, um, but the chapter on remedies, I think, is—I mean—in my experience, it's unique in its ability to speak directly to the methods used to interrupt pregnancy. Um, do you want to do you want to say a little bit more about what you found in these archives?
1: Um, yes, and honestly, what. You know, some days I couldn't even believe what I was reading um, in the in, in this material for, for that reason. So the phrase that they used for interrupting reproduction, as I say um, uh, in the book, which is the phrase I use in the book, was remedies. They tried remedies, and what? But what they meant by a remedy was either they took something, um, some kind of mix potion. They were very vague about what that was. Um, that right. they they bought it or actually their partner bought it um, from, you know, from surgeons or apothecaries, um, or that they had a surgeon come and bleed them. Huh? Um, and that mm-hmm. bloodletting was thought to be a very important way of sort of restoring the humors and harmony of the body. Huh? So both of those um, strategies, either taking this potion or um, bloodletting, were intended nominally intended to restore women's periods. Huh? That is, that it was okay. thought to be unhealthy for um, young women not to have a menstrual cycle. And so to restore their health, um, they would try one of these remedies. And, uh, you know, this this idea of restoring women's menstrual health gave young women and their communities a lot of, as I say in the book, a sort of gray area to operate in. Huh? Um, right. That's all we're doing, you know, trying to restore her period. Oh, by the way, you know, we're going to interrupt a pregnancy to do that. But because that was legitimate and commonly practiced, um, I think it did give them a lot of space um, to manage or to try to manage interrupting reproduction. And... um, and one of the things that's so interesting for me about that is young women talking about how ill they were, how sick they were from taking some of these potions. Oh, and, sure. um, you know, so really it seems to me how they worked was just by making young women so sick that um, it induced a miscarriage. <laughs> uh, right. So um, so that's, um, you know, there's some very... Um, telling material about that and one part of that that's so interesting is how young couples talked about that that is this idea that they recognized she was pregnant and one or both of them did not yet want to get married and so they negotiated over how to interrupt reproduction by one of these means and sometimes you know these young women they just make me laugh. They just made me laugh in the archives sometimes. And one of them, for instance, you know, she's in court, of course, explaining in court about how this happened. So since they're explaining in court, they always want to say, oh, it was his idea. Believe me, it was his idea. Right. Whereas in fact, I think often they were negotiating. And she tells a story about how she's pregnant, they're not ready to get married, the boyfriend comes with a bottle of so-called Spanish wine that he got from his employer's cellar she was very skeptical about how it looked um so they had a little dispute about about what that was but um uh he left abruptly with the dispute and she thought she'd try some on the cat first and sure enough the cat keeled over and died in a couple of hours just you know you, you can just sense her frustration with the boyfriend. <laughs> right. Um, but, as, you know, as well, in a way, as, you know, the sense of this, you know, sort of we want to be able to control reproduction, you know, as a kind of backstory, um, which is really hard for us to recover when we look at young people's relationships in the past. And obviously, they weren't always successful. These, you know, if they'd been successful, young women wouldn't have been coming to court for paternity suits. But right. they certainly wanted to, and they tried um, with these various efforts um, to get some control over the reproductive process. Uh-huh
0: fascinating. it's just it's really incredible for me to have a sense of the urban landscape providing both um, both men and women with these um, expanded networks right and and um, expanded resources that they might be able to call upon to to make the life that they wanted for themselves right and not and not simply take what comes.
1: Yes, exactly. You know their desire to have, you know, what we might say um, in a simple term, some agency over their situation. You know that even though they didn't have effective birth control, and that took a, you know, a long time into the twentieth century, really, for women to um, have effective birth control, they definitely did not feel simply passive victims of fertility. You know, they wanted to control that. Sometimes. some of these young people were in long relationships because that's what was required in court to show a stable relationship. Right. And sometimes they would say, um, you know, I took a remedy last time and it made me so ill. I didn't want to do it this time. Um, and, you know, so that sense of this um, you know, being a kind of ongoing process as part of their relationship, this talking about. Um, the danger of her being pregnant. She appears to be pregnant. What can we do about that? They were really engaged um, with the, with that project, even as I keep saying they were not very successful.
0: Right. I've got to ask: Are there any individuals or couples that just really stuck with you, and you you kind of kept them in the back of your mind as you were researching and writing? Inspirational, or or? Um,
1: I, I I think the um. The ones who stay most in my mind um, today, probably, I would say, some of the most heart-rending stories for, sure. for me, um, you know, when the tension, stress, crisis, what are we going to do, um, is really facing them um, head on. And in some ways, um, partly because this is the side I'm seeing, you know, how exasperating or... Um, unreliable, you know, um, young men could be in these situations. So, um, for instance, there's one, um, one of, one of my couples, um, who had been in a long relationship and she, she was one who had taken a remedy previously and, um, had been very ill and she wasn't pregnant afterwards, but they still kept seeing each other. They were still expecting to get married. They were still having sex. And so of course she got pregnant again and he and perhaps they both thought they still weren't ready to get married in the sense that you said at the start that they weren't making enough money to form a household of their own and to live independently. And so he wanted her to take the remedy. And she said, no, because I was so ill before. And at least in the court record, um, she just recounts, she recounts that he said, OK, no problem. When you deliver the baby, hide it under your quilt and I'll come and take it away. And of course, he didn't say what he was going to do with it. Was right. he going to discard it somewhere, um, its body somewhere um, where nobody would find it? Was he going to um, take it and abandon it at the foundling hospital? Was he going to have someone take it to a wet nurse in um, in a village outside of Lyon, as m- most young men did, pay wet nurses to take care of these babies that they were charged with the custody with? But it, the, the sense of them cooperating in a way, huh? but also the intensity of these kinds of conversations and experiences um, for these young couples. I think, um, you know, those are the ones that really stay with me in a very lively way today. And another of those examples where um, she has given birth early, unclear whether she, how actively she sought to interrupt um, her pregnancy. Um, But he went to visit her. The young men were often visiting them after the baby was born because they had been in these ongoing relationships. And the baby's body, cadaver, was in a small box by her bed. Mm -hmm. So he he knew that. The the neighbors who were there knew that. And one of the neighbors recalled that um, she heard him asking her, so what are you going to do with that? That is the baby's dead body. Oh, my. And, you know. You know what would we say? We would say it's not up to me. You do something with it. I'm the one who's in bed recovering from having a baby, huh? right? Um, but the, you know, the sort of swirling, intense emotions, these very difficult situations, um, and yet, as you said, these sort of networks of friends, neighbors um, who are supporting them um, in the in these situations. You know, that's it's um, those really. It's, really stay with me.
0: Yeah. oh such heartrending um, material. I really the, um, the kind of grief and longing and desire all wrapped up together it's really it's really affecting. Um, and I did cry several times while reading this book. Um, I, I want to give you a chance just to, to fill us in on um, what you are working on now.
1: I'm, um, I'm going to go back to the book I was working on when I started on this, which is um, called Hanging Bankrupts, Credit Crime and the Transition to Capitalism. And that's oh, really wow. about different kinds of, again, grassroots, really looking at grassroots practices, how grassroots experiments with new means of credit um Uh, were really critical in the transition to capitalism. So ordinary people starting to keep account books and experimenting with what it might mean to keep account books. Um, And women often were the account keepers in these small businesses. And so they were the ones who were doing the experimenting. And so, one quick example of that is um, they they started to realize that maybe they should keep accounts for a lot of reasons. It became more important legally. Um, I think there was a lot of talk about it in Leon. A lot of um, books were being printed. How to do your accounts? Like there were a lot of how to do books being printed about for every subject in early modern. I Europe. did not know that. And um, and so they would do, you know, buy. This was long before you could get ready printed paper, you know, lined paper for account books. So they would buy sheaves of plain paper and then draw in by hand what they thought an account book should look like with the different columns and so on. And sometimes they did do something with that that we might recognize as accounting. And sometimes after they bought the books and carefully penciled in the lines, it was just (laughs) kind of chaotic system anyway. But that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. But on the side, actually, I'm also... Working, um, I'm just starting, I think, what will be a side project about um, the kinds of um, paraphernalia that was left with abandoned children, with these babies, the kinds of babies that um, I'm writing about here when they were abandoned at the Foundling Hospital, older children too. And... Um, Uh, unmarried as well as married parents left tokens with them um, that is different items um, with them of which my favorite is this pink garter with which I start the book. Um, But they also left these notes, um, sometimes scraps of notes, sometimes much longer explanations. And I'm interested in seeing those notes as a kind of life writing. And um, so I'm interested in looking, again, at ordinary working families and how their experiences of poverty and precarity, as we might say, their sort of precarious grip on stable day-to-day life, how that, what we can tell about the emotions of parenting and of those experiences huh, um, through looking at these tokens and, um, and this Uh, life writing in these little scraps of paper or longer notes. So I'm working on that on the side.
0: Oh, that is so exciting. That is, and this actually, this opens the book, the, um, the garter from a foundling. And I do want to just let everyone listening to this know that we will provide an image of this garter. It's reproduced both on the book cover, actually, um, and then on the inside of page two, um, and it says, it's a beautiful kind of thin pink ribbon that's beaded and in beaded lettering, it says, je m'éloigne sommes séparé, which you translate here as, I am going away, but not leaving you. And um, I do want everybody to be able to see the kind of detail of the work that that is found on this incredible token um, from one foundling. And so you have more of these and we'll be writing a uh, uh, longer work on on those tokens yes. left with these yes. children. Fabulous. Yes.
1: And in fact, one, um, although that's the only token I have, that's the only garter that I found as one of those tokens. Um, oh, right. They, they always... Um, write a very detailed description of what the child, baby or child, was wearing or had with them when they were abandoned. And so I can tell from that, actually, that on other occasions, um, mothers or parents chose to, like, leave gardens with them. And so that's so interesting for me for a, you know, a huge variety of reasons, as well as all the other, you know, about children's clothing, baby's clothing, and other kinds of sort of material culture of poverty. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow.
0: Well, I can't wait to read it. Um, I want to thank you again, Professor Hardwick, so much for joining us today. Um, And we will have a link to the book on our JWH website. Um, But I
1: hope that we will be able to have you back again to talk about some of these future projects. Oh, that would be wonderful. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.